Welcome to the FDN Thrive Podcast. We interview leaders in the functional health space who bring you the most up-to-date, cutting-edge information for people who have tried it all for their health issues. We hope you enjoy the show. Now, Lyme disease especially, once it's in the body and say it spreads or, you know, however it is in the person, it can change forms. From the spirochete form, it can change into a round ball. And when it's in a round ball, it evades the immune system so the immune system doesn't know it's there. So the immune system cannot go after it. This is the danger of antibiotics. There are multiple Russian studies that show when you put antibiotics right in there, that the spirochete as a defense will go into a round ball and that this is why antibiotic treatment might not be effective. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the FDN Thrive Podcast. My name is Evan Transu, aka Health Coach Ev, and I will be your host for today's show. We are going to be talking to someone who is super impressive. She absolutely threw it down on this podcast. Um, I was taking notes. I just could not get enough of it, and an hour simply didn't do it justice. We're going to be talking a lot about Lyme disease. That's definitely what we focused around, but we also talk about her story and her background, and she has a really interesting one. She started out doing very well in ballet and then ended up here in holistic health. So her name is Rika Keck, and she is a holistic health coach who specializes in chronic infections such as Lyme disease and mold sickness. She brings more than 20 years of experience into this arena and diligently maintains ongoing education. In her health practice, her endeavor is to explore possible root causes that contribute to symptoms and prolonged sickness rather than suppressing symptoms. It is for this reason that she considers herself a health investigator. She is a trusted health advocate to her clients in the U.S. and in Europe, and her bio could go on for much longer than that, I'm sure, and it would be well-deserved. <laughs> um, she's got a lot to say. I don't want to spoil anything. This is just one you're going to have to listen to. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Hey there, Rika. Thank you so much for being here with us tonight. Hi, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm totally thrilled to be on this podcast, and thank you, Evan, for making this happen. Absolutely. Yeah. And I am excited for the interview because um, you and I have obviously been friends on Facebook and I've seen you in the FDN group for years now. And I know that you are just a wealth of knowledge. So I'm very um, excited again to just hear your background and then learn some things from you. But we will start off today just like we do with everyone else, because I think it is relevant and important. And that is, you know, when does the health journey start for Rika? And most specifically, like, I mean, like, when do the health symptoms start? Like, were you getting sick as a kid? Was it teenage years, adult? Let's start off with that. Okay. Um, I have a very long medical history that once when I went to see a medical intuitive, she said to me, Rika, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to kill yourself? Because I've had so many physical injuries especially physical injuries that are, I thought that everybody on the planet, by the time they kind of reach my age, that there's a whole like sheet of medical history. And as a health coach, when I take medical histories from clients, I would realize that that is not the case where I would have to really ask questions double, like you never sprained an ankle or, you know, you never had whiplash or you never had a surgery you never fell out of a tree, you know, you've never had stitches because to me, injuries and accidents are just part of my history. Now, from a health perspective, growing up in Johannesburg, 
the allergies in springtime were always very bothersome. My father really has really bad allergies too. And when I was about 18 years old, I went to an allergist and he told me that for the rest of my life, I'll have to be on allergy pills. And needless to say, that didn't work for me. So I didn't do it. And that was also the time when I had my wisdom teeth cut out. I had all four cut out. But before that, um, <laughs> you see, here I go again. Before that, I started, when I was in high school, my nose would always bleed. And then they took me to the doctor and he said, my septum in the nose is crooked. And because his nose is always bleeding, we have to operate in the operated the deviated septum, which was a horrible recovery with three days in the hospital and plugs. And then when they took them out, they give you an anesthetic, they hit a nerve in my leg. I had shooting pain for six months. And then also before that, I had um, multiple other injuries, you know, sprains and strains and hamstring injuries. So because I was a, a dancer, I was already from a very young age, very physically oriented. And then I also did gymnastics. So my body was always my vehicle. And perhaps it is because of that, that I put myself more into situations where I could become injured. But to me, the first injury that I do recall is when my little sister and I were fighting on a chair and the chair fell over and I hit my head on the coffee table and I had to get stitches in my eyebrow. And then also another time the dog ran me over. I was a young girl and then it broke my front tooth. I had to go to the dentist repeatedly and the injections from the eyebrow and the teeth to this day have made me afraid of the dentist and of injections. So you see, just in this like five minute little speck, you'll see that there's already from a young age, uh, perhaps a predisposition towards injury and accidents mm -hmm. and, you know, medical stuff going on. And that just kept on going the older I got. However, true health issues started perhaps more in my 30s when the hormones started to really kick in into monthly migraines. And at that time I had moved to New York City. I, I didn't have a lot of money. So I kept myself on a strict budget, a nutrition budget. And I was a personal trainer. I was a fitness instructor in New York City. And I was uh, working at the Peninsula Spa on Fifth Avenue. I was living in Jersey City and I had just gotten a green card. So I was so happy because now I was working in the fitness industry and I was really pushing hard. You know, I would start at 6 a.m. in the morning with clients and I'd finish at 8 a.m. And then I would have to go home. And I didn't have a lot of money. And my diet consisted of um, a budget that was a Boston cream donut from the cart on the street. And then Starburst. Oh, my. <laughs> and then also a hot dog. So that was like part of a daily diet and coffee. So it is at that time then that I got introduced to Paul Check's work. And that was a whole shift over. And when I studied, it was more the exercise first with Paul Check. It is then that I got involved in nutrition and holistic lifestyle coaching, physiology. But I have a whole history. And I mean, I've done every diet of, you know, sweet and low and going low fat. I, I've done all of that, right? 
So I have lived quite a lot, seen a lot, done a lot, experienced a lot, done many of the things we don't call good today, but maybe it is because I have done that, that I have a deeper understanding of it and the implications of it. You know? So migraines were par for the course, you know, with that sugar, high sugar diet mm-hmm. and, you know, just bouncing off the walls because I'm a very A-type personality, high, highly charged person. So I was really, you know, burning out big time, but I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. So the migraines were a big part of what turned the corner for me into nutrition, Um, besides injuries and just also um, just paying attention to my body and just realizing that things weren't great and that I wanted to do something about it. Very cool. And first of all, I have a question not related to health because I need to check up on my geography here. You said Johannesburg. Is that South Africa? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Very cool. So that's awesome. Um, that I never, I don't think I've ever met anyone from South Africa to talk to them. So that's very interesting to get that perspective. I'm sure we can um, hop back to that because I'd love to know the differences in healthcare between that and the USA, but maybe that's a separate conversation. I'd like to you know, stick on track for now at least and focus on the health issues that you were dealing with. Now, you got introduced to Paul Check, and for those that don't know, uh, definitely a good friend of FDNs and a man who has an extremely interesting philosophy on, again, yeah, both the nutrition side of things and physical fitness side of things. So what were some of the health results that you were getting when you got more into the natural side of things? Because was Paul Check, was that the first time that you had really looked at these health issues from a more natural perspective or were you already doing that before? Well, when I started studying with Paul and also Susie Nevelle, his assistant, it was for the Czech practitioner training to really up my game in personal training. But what resonated with me is that if the physical body, sports injuries, the physical body does not heal. You have to look at nutrition. And if you address that and nutrition doesn't get better, you have to look at also the emotional and spiritual side of the things. So that has always resonated with me. And this is part of my work today as well. And even though I am still heavy in personal training, because I love it. I loved the human body. I love moving the body and I'm tooting my own horn. I'm excellent at it. My eye for detail is excellent. But because I still work in the physical world, sports training, rehabilitation, I also see how people's bodies break down or do not heal. And then I ask about their nutrition and their stress levels. And I feed it in there. And the human body is incredible because the body will not heal if you don't feed it right and think right and sleep right and treat it right. And this is why then when I started with with Paul Check, first of all, I did metabolic typing. I'm a fast oxidizer, so my diet with Yuhu and Boston Pium Donuts didn't quite fit into the metabolic typing system, right? So I thrive on high protein and high fat. And I burn through carbohydrates very quickly. However, I find that when I am physically more active and sports training, because weightlifting, etc., I definitely, if I don't get enough carbs, I tank out. So it's about customization and depending on activity level. However, metabolic typing was a big shift for me. And that is when I started looking into that 
And then I also started into the HLC program with Paul Check. And those were the days, seriously, when we would be 8 o'clock or 7.30 in the car park doing Qigong. And we would be in class till 10 o'clock at night with Paul Check. He doesn't wow. do anymore. He doesn't do that anymore. But every night we were like falling asleep with our head like on the paperwork. <laughs> it, was, it was intense. And it was, yeah, and that's is intense, but it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant, right? And it, it is that that really became my my foundation for physiology and thinking, thinking big. And even with myself, with my most horrible sports well, injury I had two years ago, you know, bringing it all into play, but now also with using nutrition to help heal, also looking at other healing modalities and. I know I'm going off topic, but this is where then also now I'm delving into Feldenkrais, which again ties back into the nervous system. So everything always comes back in circles in my life. Nutrition, exercise, healing, rehabilitation, nervous system rebalancing, you know, cognitive, you know, mind, body, spirit, everything comes together. So the shift that I found, of course, is that when I started eating better, I had more energy, stable blood sugar. You know, I was not so sore. My exercise recovery was much better. My joints weren't creaking anymore. However, the migraines persisted with menstrual cycles. The hormones persisted. However, I could now exercise because before I would do weightlifting, I would get a horrible migraine because my tissues were so dehydrated. So now in working through the nutritional programs, Hydrating, eating, balancing blood sugars definitely brought on a change in the ability to have a full load all day long and not being a sugar junkie and having less migraines because migraines were par for every single week. That shifted for me. Awesome. And how did this eventually lead you to finding something like functional diagnostic nutrition? I'm guessing from what you said that came after Paul Check? Yeah, yeah. I mean, after Paul's work, I somehow got into Western A. Price. And then I also, which to this day I'm fascinated by, is the work of Dr. Cohen, C-O-W-A-N. And his book, especially The Four Fault Path to Healing, wonderful book. Check out his videos on YouTube. However, then I also had enrolled in a functional medicine university online program. I'm still a member there. That also, to me, it was all about how could I learn more clinical and functional from reputable sources. But then, here's the challenge, because, and we all have that as a non-licensed practitioner, how are you creditable? Because... If there is no certification that is behind me, and at that time, being a health coach wasn't powerful, of course, it wasn't known at that time, I thought I need to get a license or a certification just to shore up kind of in my resume. And then I did look at getting a license from massage, but I, I looked at it, I'm like, forget it. And that is when I came across the FDA program. And then I saw that Reed had a program. Um, we could get become certified as an FDN. But the challenge is 
living in New York City. Because a lot of the testing is not legal in the state of New York. So that is an ongoing challenge. And not just with FDN testing, you know, all the other tests too are, you know, you can't do them legally in New York State. Sure, when I'm working with a client, the client could take the path train across to New Jersey. The client could jump on a train half an hour to, uh, you know, Stanford, Connecticut. It's easy, half an hour. However, and this is all before COVID, it's hard enough to get people coming into your office for that time. Then to ask them to jump on a train and to go elsewhere in a way, unless they're really sick, etc., it's 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 difficult, and yeah. then also, if you explain to them this test is illegal, and part of the issue is that I had heard at one of the conferences how uh, a chiropractor had a doc had a patient doing a functional test. Take a, as an example in the state of New York, and say the patient goes does a test in New Jersey, comes back and then takes that test to the primary care physician, right? And, but what can happen is the primary care physician, they don't know that those tests because these tests are not done in the state of New York. And often it is very frustrating because even if I do a mycotoxin test or an organic acid test and it shows up and pharmaceutical involvement might be an option that might be helpful. If someone in New York state goes out or does the Great Plains test out of state, but then goes to the doctor in New York State, the doctors in New York State are completely going to deny any, you know, reject it. They don't know anything about it. And it's then the, the client has spent money on a test, and then they also get a little bit confused because they feel that this test doesn't have enough value if their own doctor doesn't know enough about it. So to me, client education is big. My clientele that I work with is actually more um, in Europe. I work in Europe. I work in other states. I do have clients in New York State, so upstate New York. But often I get clients who've seen many doctors then who are already, if they're upstate New York, they already know the challenges with testing in New York because the Lyme disease world is a whole nother ballgame. And a lot of the tests in Lyme disease world, you know, mold, and obviously Lyme testing, be a DNA connections test or be an arm in labs are not, cannot be done in New York state. Yeah. Sure. And it has been really saddening to me from pretty much day one of getting into this work to find that it is such a barrier um, to get these people to be able to run. You know, you think you should just have the right to be able to run a test on yourself. I mean, <laughs> it's a little strange to me that anyone can tell me that I can't run a test on myself that doesn't affect anyone else, doesn't harm anyone else, right? It's something I'm voluntarily choosing to do. Um, but that's a Wow, that's a major rabbit hole to get down. I want to, for those that listen to this podcast frequently, you kind of know the normal course I take with our FDN practitioners. Um, but, you know, I want to detour a little bit today because Rika has such a wealth of knowledge uh, for Lyme disease and you know many other things, but specifically Lyme as well. And it's something I'd like to spend some time on today and give it you know, the amount of time that it deserves. So before we jump into the actual details of Lyme, I'm curious, Rika, like what led up to you 
specializing in Lyme or making this one of your specialties? I mean, is this something you dealt with yourself? How did that part of your career manifest? I was doing, I was working as, let's call it a health coach um, with a client, say 2006. And I was doing research because he went to the clinic for the Farrah Fawcett Clinic in Germany. And then somehow on a Saturday afternoon, I came across the work of Dietrich Klinghardt. Now I am German, I speak German. And I'm like, hey, here's this German doctor. I like what he has to say. He's talking about Lyme disease. I'm like, this is weird. I've never heard about it. And then I looked at his videos and then I saw that he's coming to New York City and I signed up for the Lyme disease conference at the New York Hilton. I had no idea about Lyme disease, right? So I went there with like 600 other people sitting there with Klinghart and all the other presenters. And I'm sitting in the, in the auditorium, like, well, in the ballroom. And I'm thinking, why are you here? You don't know anybody with Lyme disease. You don't know Lyme disease. And when I told clients or, or people I'm going to a Lyme disease conference, they all say, why? Right? And to this day, I still get pushback. I mean, when I wrote a book about Lyme disease, my, my one client said to me, why do you waste your time on that? Why don't you do something that's more important? So to this day, I get pushback. And I can meet people in New York City and say, you know, I, I work a lot in Lyme disease and I get a blank face. And this is the number one infectious infection in the United States before COVID. Hmm. So it is astounding. But then this is how I stumbled onto the work of Dietrich Klinghardt. And then I, I learned more about it. And I thought this is fascinating because the people are so, so, so sick. And they're not being validated. They're not being heard. And this is like incredible what I'm hearing and learning. And I got deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And then I thought there must be a reason why. And then, yeah, true as Bob. Years later, my husband had a tick on him once we had a house in Connecticut and my husband had Lyme disease. He got the bullseye within a few days. So that is a healthy immune response. And then my husband went on antibiotics and doxycycline. And at that time, I still didn't know as much. And I don't have a problem with doxycycline for an acute infection. I don't. And this is the whole thing where people think, but you're holistic. I'm like, yeah, but you also have got to have common sense and look at look at the whole picture. So anyway, he went on doxy and then I continued um, treatment, botanical treatment afterwards for him and the gut. But the gut already took a beating. And my husband then was okay. Another time, though, later on, it always made me wonder, he then came up with a rash and the doctors diagnosed it as shingles. And I looked and his symptomology, I'm like, this is not shingles. They put him on Veltrex, uh, no, yeah, some Veltrex, and they gave him a Valium and he came home. He's like, the doctors gave me this for pain. And I took the package. I said, you don't need this. You know, I said, if you have pain, you tell me, I'll give you something else. But to this day, and because Lyme disease can also show up as, shing as a shingles rash, I was wondering, because then two years later after that, he had another tick. And this was tenacious. Or I don't know if it was, if it just brought up the old infection and made it so tenacious. So he went on doxy again, three weeks, because at least it was a Lyme literate doctor who knows it needs to be three weeks, no less no less if you're going to use doxy and he stopped the doxy by now his gi was a complete mess and 
before he was on Doxy, I was able to run the DNA connection test on him, the urine test. That came back in the meantime. And he went back to the doctor, though, because he was still symptomatic and the rash wasn't calming down. The bite area wasn't calming down. So the doctor put him on another round of antibiotics. This is a Lyme literate medical doctor. In the meantime, the DNA connections test came back for Lyme, and it came back for the strain of Lyme divergence, which is not that prevalent in the Northeast. It is more a uh, European strain. So I thought this is very interesting, right? because we're seeing the strain um, Borrelia divergence more in the Northeast. But if we check the Western blood test, that only checks for Borrelia burgdorferi. Right. It doesn't check for the other strains that are in the Northeast. So I'm glad I did the DNA connections test on my husband, showed up that type of Lyme strain, and it also showed up some of Babesia, Babesiosis. So the doxycycline doesn't touch Babesiosis. So I then went into full high gear because the physician wasn't being very helpful. And the physician wanted to argue with me that the babesiosis is not a problem or it didn't show up sufficiently. So I called up the Lyme, the lab, uh, DNA Connections, and I spoke to the medical director. And I went through the test with them. And everything that I explained, they said, you're right, you're right, you know. So then I went on to an aggressive treatment for my husband because even after he had the second round of doxycycline. So he'd been on two rounds of doxycycline. The, the bite side just wouldn't come down. So then I added topical applications. And even while my husband was on the second round of antibiotics, I was doing separately uh, homeopathic remedies for parasitic and uh, bacterial Lyme. And I was also doing botanicals at the same time. And then, of course, the inflammatory cascades gone on and detoxification agents. So just really putting them on, on a whole full protocol. And it took about eight months to bring the situation more under control because as the bite and the area from the bite side was calming down, calming down, calming down, calming down, all of a sudden there would be more of a flare and bringing it back down. So this was, it took a, a while because even, I mean, at one time we were in, in Scotland and there was a little bit of a flare. And now we're in the middle of the Isle of Skye, in the middle of nowhere. And my husband's like, it's getting worse. So I just, because I always travel with antiparasitics, you know, I right on went back on there and even, you know, put, put it on topical, just trying to get it through the skin and just working topical and orally and brought it back down to this level. And at the same time, supporting the immune system. So it is, it's been quite a ride, and I do feel one of the reasons probably I was in Klingard in 2007 is that when I was faced with it at home, that I would have the tools on my toolbox to go into high gear. And it wasn't pleasant because, I mean, it was extremely stressful. I mean, now, at this point, I have resources and doctors. Separately, I had made an appointment with one of the Lyme literate medical doctors whom I highly trust in New Jersey. And I'd made the appointment way in ahead. And part of my strength as a practitioner is, is I have a good network. 
because when I go to all the conferences, I meet a lot of doctors and I, I try to stay in contact with them. So if I, if there's a crisis or if I need help or if I need to um, shoot some ideas around that I, I can do that with a physician and we, we share, we share information. And the key is that the networking is really important. And now I'm, I'm diverging a little bit, Evan, if this is okay. That's okay. I have found out as a practitioner that when I go to conferences, I meet doctors who right away, they glance at my name tag. And then when they see that there is no MD or anything interesting on there, they kind of want to dismiss me. And at the same time, I had a conference. I can stand in a round of doctors and we're all talking, say about a conference on Lyme carditis that just happened. And we're all talking, talking, talking. Where the doctors turn around to me and say, who are you? What do you do? Not because, and the reason why is because I actually am intelligently contributing to the conversation. And I raise points that they find are interesting and intriguing because lateral thinking and global thinking is crucial. And it's because of that, those people whom I stay in touch with, they don't carry, they don't care what name tag I have, what is on it, right? So even just this weekend, I was connecting with a cardiologist from the ILATS forum about a case. We trade about five or six emails. He wrote back to me, I wrote back, he wrote back to me. He doesn't care that I'm not a medical doctor. So don't waste your time on people who dismiss you. Spend time with doctors who don't care who you are, what your, you know, what your titles are behind your name. You know, stand up for yourself and just by knowing and standing and owning and putting your stake in the ground, you know, right there, that is what is going to make the difference. Right? It's, yeah, it's pretty incredible because what most people don't realize in today's world, and when I say most people, I mean people, you know, outside of the health space, is what the internet has done for bringing so much information right to the average person's computer. Um, they have access to better books, all these different types of things. And, you know, if you have the ability and um, desire to go out and learn stuff, you can teach yourself a hell of a lot. And what I've gathered from this 28 minutes is obviously you're a very intelligent woman um, who clearly could have been a doctor if you chose to do so, right? So I think that's probably one of the impressions that the doctors are getting from you as well is like you can go out and still be an intelligent enough individual, research this and figure it out. Um, so it's really cool to know that you do have that in your network. Now, focusing on this topic of Lyme, it is very interesting that you were at this place getting this information before your husband ever got it, and it was still um, a struggle to deal with. So what I'm really curious about is like, what, and I, I maybe this is too simplistic because clearly you can give a lot of advanced information on this, but just for the average person out there listening with this, like, what are we missing in medicine. Why does everyone think that Lyme disease is something that comes from a tick, you take a course of antibiotics, and you never have to worry about it again, where we know this is like something that lasts for years for some individuals um, and can even trigger symptoms years down the road when they didn't know that they had it. Like, where is this disconnect happening? Okay. I just, one thing, Evan, I could have never been a doctor. And it's very simple why. 
I do not have the gene for biochemistry. I just, it's not me. I, physiology is my strength. Biochemistry is not. This is why I cannot be a doctor. And to me, it's, that's cool. That's fine. But I cannot be a doctor. Now, with regards to uh, roughly about, people will argue about the numbers, about some will say 20%, some will say 40% of people who get treated with a round of antibiotics for Lyme disease will have lingering symptoms. Uh, now, the Infectious Disease Society of America argues that Lyme disease doesn't persist beyond the, the time frame of short-term antibiotic treatment. And they argue that lingering symptoms after are the result of an ongoing immune response and are not a result of ongoing infection. Right. Now, it is very interesting because now we're in the time of COVID with long COVID. So I've been pursuing this long COVID, you know, chronic Lyme. I don't like to call it chronic Lyme because it's being very frowned upon. It's like when you have a discussion with a doctor about leaky gut. If you call it persistent infection, uh, that sounds better than chronic Lyme. Chronic Lyme is more like a layperson term. But with persistent infection, the ILADS, infectious, um, International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society, ILADS, I'm a member of ILADS, they acknowledge that Lyme disease can persist longer than two to three weeks because the infection, how it works in the body, it would actually require six weeks of treatment with doxycycline in order to eradicate the infection, the way it, it works inside the body. And this is why I always say if you are on doxycycline for two to three weeks, even though ILADS is 20 days minimum, go on botanical treatment two months after, so at least you have three months of treatment in your system. The reason why Lyme disease is very tricky to treat is if it's acute and you get a bullseye, which is very obvious, a doctor can treat you. If you don't get a bullseye, you have to test positive in the Western blood test or the ELISA test so the doctor legally can treat you. If you test negative, the doc you test negative so you don't have it, which is not true because the Western blood test was never designed as a diagnostic tool. That is right there, the flaw. And the Western blot and ELISA test do not check for co-infections, which are very prevalent with a tick bite. Now, Lyme disease especially, once it's in the body and say it spreads or, uh, you know, however it is in the person, it can change forms. From the spirochete form, it can change into a round ball. And when it's in a round ball, it evades the immune system, so the immune system doesn't know it's there. So the immune system cannot go after it. This is the danger of antibiotics. There are multiple Russian studies that show when you put antibiotics right in there, that the spirochete as a defense will go into a round ball, and that this is why antibiotic treatment might not be effective. Later on, it can go into the tissues, it can go into biofilm, a deeper hiding place. And this is why then when you put antibiotics into the system, it is very hard then if the inf infection has been there for a long time or is diagnosed at a later stage and the infection has penetrated more to deeper tissues for the medications to be effective. This is part of the scenario with Lyme disease. It is also with Bartonella, which is a co-infection prevalent in the Northeast. And I call Bartonella a beast 
And also, you know, all these infections dismantle, you know, have a way of dismantling the immune system besides trying to evade it. They try to shift the immune system and then viruses can come up and you can be sick with a viral infection because of Lyme. And if you add mold to the picture, it becomes all a big whammy. And separately, one of the infections that can come with Lyme disease is the Powassan virus. It's a viral infection. And this is also one of the reasons why people can be treated for Lyme disease with antibiotics. And they think they're still sick with Lyme, but they're actually sick with a Powassan virus that doesn't, you know, doesn't, doesn't get treated with doxycycline. And the Powassan virus, which I learned on one of the ILADS conferences, is actually much more prevalent than we had thought. And it really brings on a chronic fatigue issue with it. And this is why the talk, the, the ongoing fatigue with long COVID or, or chronic fatigue syndrome or fatigue with persistent Lyme and co-infections. It's a very interesting conversation, you know. But it's, it's difficult if someone's been sick, you know, past three months in Lyme disease, then they're going more into the chronic category. Mm-hmm. Three months is more the acute category, yeah. Okay, and when these people, because you know what, I, I imagine very easily that some people are going to be listening to this and saying, oh, well, you know what, maybe they knew that they had Lyme before, or maybe they lived in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, like I did, which is Southeast Pennsylvania, right on the border of Jersey, very forested, very suburban. There are deer ticks everywhere. Um, I was camping outside this summer and I was religious in analyzing every little part of the tent. I kept very minimum amounts of gear in there because I wanted to be able to see um, every little part of the tent before I went to bed. And I would actually check myself, you know, two or three times before going to bed, which can seem a little crazy to some. Um, but when you are surrounded by the amazing practitioners that I am, you know that you don't want this thing, ideally. <laughs> and my question for you is, how, like, are there common symptoms of people who have been dealing with this for a while and have, like, it never really got treated correctly? Or are the symptoms just so all over the place that it's kind of hard to tell? Um, like, how would you suspect someone might be dealing with chronic Lyme, I guess is a better way to ask it. Okay. We're going to finding out more and more symptoms. Like, even, uh, you know, a weakened, sounds bizarre, abdominal wall muscle, right? that the person can't stand up straight, you know, even really weird stuff like that. But if someone comes to me, says they've been treated for Lyme, there weren't antibiotics, they had to take, but they still feel that, that it's not gone. And that's, I hear that a lot, a lot. Usually I say, okay, well, what it, it, give me a rundown of what you feel. Right? And then you also have to ask is, well, initially with the initial infections, what were your symptoms? Because you have to see now when they say, I feel it's not gone, and you ask them, well, what are your symptoms now? You want to check if there's correlations to the initial symptoms with the initial infection. Because if, they, if the symptoms that they're having now are very different from the initial symptoms they did have, then you have to think, you know, did they, is this a flare or did they pick up something else in the meantime that we, are newer, we have newer infections on top of it? Okay. So when I'm looking at, um, I mean, just from the top of my head, when I'm looking at Lyme disease, Lyme disease is very prevalently known for um, affecting the joints. 
hence the name Lyme disease from old Lyme, Connecticut, because a lot of young kids developed joint arthritis. And that happened in the town of Lyme, old Lyme, Connecticut. And that is why it was then called Lyme disease, because of the kids with juvenile arthritis in Lyme, Connecticut. It drives me bonkers if people call it Lyme's. Now, in any case, Lyme disease, uh, joint arthritis, even anything to do with rheumatology, for me, is a red flag. Gastrointestinal issues can be there. Neurological headaches and nervous tics. Lyme carditis, heart issues. Urinary tract issues prostate issues. So you see where I'm going, it can be all over the map. Sure. Right. So some people, their main thing when they see me is the joints, 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 joints. And the other issues then say they were treated initially, and they still are, they have lingering symptoms, joints, but now because of maybe prolonged antibiotic treatment, then you often end up with um, yeast infections, candida and SIBO which compounds the inflammation on the joints. So you have to then really address every aspect of it. But when I'm looking at, for instance, when I'm looking at neurological and cardiovascular, that to me is the arena of Lyme disease and Bartonella, but joints, of course, and Lyme disease. Uh, when you're looking at anything, also auditory eyes, balanced vision, Lyme disease, Bartonella. When I'm looking more also at skin issues, uh, skin rashes, but also striations, especially certain type of striations, I think Bartonella. When I think of shortness of breath, headaches, pressure behind the eyes, and maybe red dots on the skin, I'm thinking more like babesiosis. If there's a headache, tight neck, stiff neck, I'm also thinking of Lyme and ehrlichiosis. So these are just like um, rough rough ideas of where I'm, I'm going in my head, but it is a much bigger picture. But at least then also a big thing is, do you get sweats at night that you're drenching your sheets at night? Then I'm going more towards fibrosis. Now, if you're getting sweats at night and sweats during the day, then I'm going more towards Bartonella. Then again, does your sweat smell musty like? That's more a Bartonella thing like bacon. You know, so when you start to listen, is it more worse during the full moon than going more towards the lime and, and parasites? You know, when when you start to live and work in this lime world, you become so attuned to asking certain questions, and each answer adds another puzzle to point you either in one direction or to lead you into another direction. But yeah. I say every infection has its own personality. And when you know the personalities, yeah, you can do then um, do corroboration with testing. But it's important to know that no test is 100% accurate. Mm -hmm. And it's also expensive. <laughs> yes, it is. Absolutely. When you were referring before to botanical treatment, you know, you said that that's a really, uh, that was an important thing for your husband as he's going through the doxy uh, treatment to do that as well. I would assume with how in-depth you 
know this stuff and the fact that you're talking about these different co-infections and all these different types of things that it's not a one size fits all treatment. But I am curious, like what were you referring to specifically when you talked about botanical treatment? Like, are there some typical or common um, botanicals that are like more powerful and um, have more efficacy for Lyme than, you know, just some random ones? Like what is it that you're referring to specifically? Okay. When I did some studies with Harold Buna's right-hand woman up in Halifax, Nova Scotia, there's a wonderful conference, a really deep dive into Harold Buna's work, which is very influential in my work, but I also like Lee Cowden. But one herb that always stands up for me is Japanese knotweed. And the reason why is because it touches lime and bartonella. And Say, for instance, a client comes to me and I get the whole medical history. The medical history is worth gold. And the questions and the timelines, the symptoms, you know, it's it's all, it gives so much information. That even if I just hear that Lyme is shouting the loudest, you know that if you go after the person who shouts the loudest in the room, Others will start shouting because now they'll be heard. So I always consider that, for instance, other bacterial infections and viruses are in play and parasites. I will always empirically address all four at the same time with plants and homeopathics. So when I'm looking at very important herbs, Japanese knotweed, because it has a dual action on Bartonella and Lyme, is there. That is super important. I do find that Cryptolepis is very important for uh, parasitic infections like Babesia. Now, I come from South Africa, and malaria is very prevalent there. So this is why my whole interest in Babesia and the crossover with malaria, because a lot of medications used for malaria in South Africa are being used for Babesia. So there's a crossover. And also in South Africa, if you get malaria, you can end up in a hospital on IV treatment with quinone. And quinone is used also in Babesia, and quinone is actually in tonic water. So um, there's a lot of crossover. The Malarone medication that's being used for Babesiosis, I had taken that in South Africa when we went to the Kruger National Park for malaria. Artisomen is used in Babesia, but it's uh, right now the cryptolepis is more my area, but I'm also not not considering artisomen, uh, sweet anua. Actually, I grew um, sweet anua in our backyard and I make tea with it. And I just have such an energetic resonance with that plant that when I smell it, it's just a big yes button in my body. And I, I drink it at night. I don't drink it all the time because you don't want to stress your system too much. But uh, Sweet Annie and Cryptolepis is in there. Cat's Claw as well, besides garlic. Those are really there, but because I'm leaning towards um, Harad Buna's work, Sita Akuta, and I, I, I like, you know, and one of the big ones that I use for or consider for um, Bartonella is Hoytunia. And I do like Lee Cowden's product from Nutramedics very much. However, I will also use other product lines. I am not married to one product line and I'll see what else is going on and the tolerance, because again, 
People can have Lyme disease and co-infections and be just fine. It is the response of the immune system that will determine the severity of sickness. And this is what people need to understand. Lyme disease has been around. It was even in the Iceman. It's, it's been yes. before COVID yes. and it'll be a post-COVID, right? Now, our immune system's been so stressed by environmental, environmental pollutants, the food and all that stuff. So our resilience against infections has been diminished. And this is why I do think it's one of the reasons, besides the changing climate and the pesticides, that these infections are becoming much more aggressive and much more prevalent. Our bodies can't fight it off. So when I'm looking at someone who's sick, uh, Klingout's work is instrumental because a lot has to do, I mean, besides we know about mold, that's a separate discussion. There, the activation of retroviruses, those are very, it's different, it's, it's a whole another category. It's think of like a stealth virus, that when the immune system is strong and we are robust and you know we're healthy, that that retrovirus is dormant. But if our immune system is suppressed, be it through COVID, be it through mold, be it through a tick bite with Lyme, be it through a crappy diet, poor lifestyle, be it through stress, say your mother just died. I mean, anything that tanks our resilience and immune system, that retrovirus, even EMF, now can awaken, it can be expressed. And that, to quell that infection is, is difficult because that retrovirus now will keep on suppressing the immune system. That even if you treat Lyme disease with antibiotics, antibiotics will not get rid of Lyme disease. It'll lower the burden because we want the immune system then to come up and to put and keep the Lyme disease in remission. But if the immune system can't rise up to the occasion because it's suppressed by the retroviruses or mold, you can keep throwing medications or treatment at the infections, but the immune system won't catch a wake up and take over. Because with all the infections, we're talking about remission, that the immune system is now strong enough and awake enough that it has its own surveillance and it can keep the lid on the genie and suppressing you know, bad guys that want to come out and play. Uh, I shouldn't joke around. I'm not joking, but it's an image, right? Mm -hmm. So this is why it's a multifaceted approach. And I do find that the endocrinology is important to be considered because if the endocrine system is non-optimal, that can also pull the system down. So we are a whole body. And to me, it's always looking at the nervous system, the endocrine system, and the immune system, how they, how they all tie into the hypothalamus in the brain. And to always look at the body in different systems. And rather than focusing on just killing the bugs, yes, I'm going to lower the burden of infection. It is essential. I'm going to work on, you know, cleaning up the body. But nothing will work if we don't shore up and create a foundation on which to build on. Understood. This has been amazing. I, without exaggeration, I have no problem saying this publicly. This has probably been the podcast or the interview on this podcast that went the fastest for me. I cannot believe we are at um, the 50 minute mark almost already. I've been loving this. This is a new interest of mine and I'm just diving into it. So uh, to get so many different perspectives and 
you just gave me like a thousand different places to go look and research and continue this study. I really appreciate it. Um, but again, for the sake of today, we are a little short on time. So I want to make sure I ask just a couple more things here. First and foremost, most importantly, where can people find you and what is your book called? All right. I have two books. Okay. So where can people find me? My website is NY Integrated Health. I also have another website. It's called chroniclymedisease.me. That is more Lyme specific. However, NY Integrated Health is also Lyme specific and fitness specific. I wear two hats. Now, I'm also on Instagram on as Rika Keck. So you can follow me on Instagram, Rika Keck. Or if you're also interested in fitness, Rika Pro Fitness, a new fitness channel. Separately on Facebook, Lyme Disease USA is a closed group all about Lyme disease. I suggest join that. It's a closed group. Or you join in general health plus Lyme disease group. It's called Rika Keck, the health investigator. My two books are on Amazon. The first book is called Nourish, Thrive, Heal a comprehensive and holistic guide to living with Lyme disease. I do not touch treating Lyme disease because actually I did not want to open myself up to being trolled and uh, litigation or people saying, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to get into that part. And especially because each person is customized and personalized. However, it is a very good book. Now, the other book is called Nourish Your Brain Cookbook. I was commissioned to write that. And I think that it's a very good book because there's crossover to the line book and it makes a nice present for anybody with a lot of information in the front section because it has 60 recipes, but the front section is all about brain inflammation, everything that we talk about in FDN. It's, it's a nice present as well. So the Nourish Thrive Heal is my personal book and it's, it's a good book and it's a nice gift as well especially if you know people who've been sick with Lyme and there's a lot that they can really go through. And I really put my heart and soul into it. It needs to be updated, but it's just really great. And I've gotten really nice feedback on it you know, because a lot of people have no clue even about using a binder, you know, or detoxification or GI trouble and enzymes, you know, stuff that we talk about as common in our world, but it's, it's a nice introduction. Yes, that is so true. I got to, I, constantly have to remind myself because you know when you have these people on social media or I'm lucky enough to have you as a friend and be in your group and be in the FDN group you do forget that this is our lens of the world right I'm only seeing this because I'm in it and then it, it you know I forget what it's like to not have the resources here and not have these connections um it, it's you know, that's why we do what we do. And that's why we keep sharing this information. So guys, I will make sure everything Rika just said is put in the show notes of this podcast so that you can go check any of that out. I know that I just added something to my reading list. That's for sure. Rika, my final question for you today is our signature question on this podcast. Now, every FDN always um, focuses on bio-individuality. And I can tell from what you've said today that you do that as well, which is great. So you almost have to humor me a little bit with this question. Um, but my question is, if Rika had a magic wand 
And you could get everyone in this world to engage in one health habit or get them to stop doing one thing. What is the one thing you would get everyone in the world to do or not to do to better our health as a whole? That is actually an easy question because it just came in one of my consultations with a client this morning. It is breathe, how to breathe. If we don't breathe, the breathing is the top of the totem pole. This is a check. If we don't breathe appropriately, we can keep our body in sympathetic overdrive nonstop. And if the body is in fight or flight nonstop, everything else will in a way be affected by that. The body can't heal. The body can't digest. The body can't rest. And the body won't get enough oxygen. And the hormones obviously get blown out. Thyroid adrenal function gets compromised. The gut gets compromised. Sleep gets compromised. Immune function gets compromised. Breathing is free. It doesn't cost anything. Breathing we can do at home. We don't have to go anywhere. Breathing is something we can take action in today, right now. And if we need guides, there are YouTube videos that help us through breathing. That is something we can do right now. And if we don't do that, our healing journey will become compromised. No supplement can replace our ability to breathe and to breathe correctly. That would be my number one tip. All right. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I felt like I was listening to some type of professor, that entire podcast. <laughs> Rika just has like a cool teaching voice even, and she's just coming from a place of such deep understanding. This was such a fun podcast. I'm sure we're going to have her on in the future. And then what I think is most interesting is as complicated and technical as we got today with certain things, what is the number one thing she talks about at the end? Breathing. Rika has a wonderful ability to keep it simple and remember the basics while also being able to get more advanced when that's necessary. I think that's what makes a great functional practitioner, and it's certainly what makes a great FDN practitioner. Well, thank you guys so much again for listening to yet another episode of the FDN Thrive Podcast. My name is Evan Transu, aka Health Coach Ev, and as always, I'm your host. We've been talking to Rika Keck. You can find all her links in the show note descriptions, and if you would be so kind to leave us a five-star review on Apple podcast. We would greatly appreciate it. What that does is it allows this to actually get higher in the rankings so that people can learn about this information. And obviously we're giving a ton of awesome stuff here for free. So we'd greatly appreciate that. But until next time, I'll see you soon. Have a good one. Thanks for tuning in to the FDN Thrive Podcast. If you feel like you've been stuck in the cycle of trial and error when it comes to your health issues, our team can help. Whether you've tried every different diet out there without lasting success, spent way too much money on supplements at your local health food store, or been told that your lab tests are normal despite feeling anything but normal, we have your back. Go to fdnthrive.com and click the Get Started Here button if you're ready to stop playing guessing games with your health. That's fdnthrive.com.